Welcome to another episode of The Greatest Pod, where we discuss and debate what makes something great. I'm Ed Greer. I'm Ron Swallow. And I am producer Bill. And today, we're going to go into a year in review and a mailbag. Two, two, two tastes in one. So, <laughs> so guys, guys, uh, as far as our year in review, it is in December where we're recording this. We have had basically the entire year. Uh, and film and comics and personal development between us. Hmm. What what kind of stuff has stuck out in your years, you guys? Well, one of the things um, that we talked about actually in our live episode from Comic-Con, I don't know if that'll be out by the time we release this one. You know what? I think I'm going to make that Patreon episode. Ah, so that okay. could be a good little spur for some people to be like, yeah, hey, man, I'll join the Patreon to listen to their live show. And then they'll get all the rest of that other stuff. That art, not content. In that spirit, you can hear us talk about this with extraordinary comic artist Jeff Johnson if you listen to that by joining the Patreon. But for me, one of the big things I noticed this year was just the mass exodus of talent, uh, specifically artistic talent, from Marvel and DC into these new kind of independent publishing ventures. And we get granular with it in the Patreon episode, but I feel like that's not getting enough press. And maybe that's also because like the comic book news press has essentially died at this point. But like this is almost an image scale exodus that's happened. Like all of the hottest artists on both rosters are now exclusive elsewhere, be it, you know, at an image imprint with Miller World um, there's some dark horse stuff going on. I, you know, it's just, it's an interesting time for comics in that respect. Um, I'm uh, pretty excited about it. Cause to me, what that is, is artists finally realizing that they're worth more than Marvel and DC is giving them. I, that's what it is to me. It's like, I, I'm just happy to see people who are doing the work, who have, uh, you know, perfected their craft, finally saying, you know what? Nah, I'm going to go make money on my own properties on my own time and effort yeah. um, and not let Marvel or DC pay me $30,000 a year, the same amount that like a manager, uh, an assistant manager at McDonald's makes. <laughs> I think it's a symptom not to of this. talk shit about McDonald's assistant managers per se, but you know what I'm saying? It's not the same sort of skilled labor that, you know, creating entertainment for the masses is. And I think that that's kind of a symptom of this larger shift to I, or maybe away from corporate media, which is not to say that, like, you know, Disney and Max and, uh, you know, the major studios or whatever aren't still at the top of the heap. But I think the creator economy is starting to learn the lesson that, like, the only thing that matters is having an audience. And you actually, at this point, don't need anybody to help you build your audience, at least in theory. And in terms of the, the monetary returns that you get, I feel like it's on this sliding scale where the major companies can no longer make quite enough to make their nut with as much overhead and resources as they put into things. But whatever that number is, has been getting more and more lucrative or attractive for these real indie startup types. And I think that's the case in all of media. Earning potential is just in this weird middle ground where suddenly, like, if you hit as an indie creator of some kind, you could be making a real nice living for yourself. And at the same time, studios and major companies are finding it harder and harder 
to hit an equilibrium with their cost to benefit ratio. Well, yeah, we talked a little bit about that this year when we were talking about, you know, being I kept being demeaning. I was talking to one of my friends who's a gal and I was just like, I like the Marvels, but a movie about three girls on a trip shouldn't cost 300 fucking million dollars. Uh, and she true. was like, stop saying it's three girls. It could have been three guys. I'm like, you're right. You're right, because like yeah. the Marvels costing that much money is like the Hangover costing that much money. Honestly, the t- yeah. the things that were fun about that movie did not cost money. Nope. It what the ignition of a sun. It was not as fun as Kamala Khan fawning over Carol Danvers and the frankly, you know, not well dramatized, but still affecting the Monica Rambeau relationship with Captain Marvel being sort of an absentee landlord, as, mm. uh, as Al Pacino would say in The Devil's Advocate. You know, you weren't here for me. I grew up into a fucking superhero, like without you. You know what I'm saying? You, we were supposed to explore the stars together. All that stuff doesn't cost money. Why yep. did that have to cost $300 million to make a nut? Why do you have to spend several million dollars marketing a comic? The answer yeah. is you kind of don't. And we're, we're coming to that. One thing I did want to discuss, though, since we're talking about comics and sales and bullshit, something happened this week. Maybe we'll put a t- the one time I'll put a time code in this motherfucker is whatever mm. time this is after I edit out all our uhs and ums right here that Mark Miller got on the Internet and took up for this comic book shop owner named Glenn. I do believe that's what the guy's name was. And that this comic book shop owner, it was taken out of context thing from his YouTube video. And he was basically saying, I don't give a fuck what your personal politics are. Keep those out of comic books. Don't self-insert yourself into comic books and make Captain America a mouthpiece for whatever you want to say or Peter Parker or any of these characters. That's not how the old comics I fell in love with were written. Stop doing that. It's killing the industry. He didn't use the word woke one time, but it was that sort of still regressive old man comic book shake fist at sky bullshit but it got so blown out of proportion because real comic creators were like fuck you man well you don't even know how comics are made and blah blah you're just you're a retailer so you just sell the stuff and blah it got to be this weird kerfuffle where everybody looked bad and then fucking mark miller swung in like fucking douglas fairbanks in a 1930s movie and started swashbuckling and taking up for this glenn guy and even on his show did an interview with this guy having him have more context to explain himself. But again, it still is the same old nut we've heard before, which is the comics today at the big two are so different from the comics I got addicted to that I no longer like them. And if I am some dork that refuses to go to a ghost machine book or read Daniel Warren Johnson's stuff with boom or IDW or whatever the fuck, if I refuse to give the image those weird um, graphic novels and uh, and stuff like that a shot because I just want to see Superman do interesting stuff. Interesting stuff according to their old paradigm, which is mostly punching robots, which is literally what the Glenn guy said. He said, I want to see Superman punch a robot. And at that point, I had to check out. You know what I'm saying? My empathy just went out of, went out at that yeah. point. Because it's like, yeah. what the fuck are you talking about? You sound like a five-year-old. But all that talking, I just wanted to give the proper context. I'm not bagging on that that retailer because he's in the shit. Mm-hmm. No matter what we say, we can't we don't argue need to. somebody yeah. who's in the shit. They're in it. They're in war, retail war, trying to make their nut off of these products. They do know more about the market than somebody like ourselves. Sure. However, Mark Mark Miller coming in being like uh, white knighting for him, as the right wing likes to say. It's just funny to me that Mark Miller broke away from those suppositions. And now he's like back to bolster this concept that there needs to be a big two and that superhero comics need to exist when most of his low key right wing and sometimes very good stuff mm. is outside of that system. 
it's this weird, almost, cons- we talk about co- comics as an intrinsically conservative art form in some of our episodes. And I think this is it because he makes a bunch of money off the fact that Marvel can't afford his artists. Marvel, mm. He pays people more than fucking Marvel does. He makes things that are already pitches that he could sell and that the artist owns half of. And he's still championing big two comics and regressive old punch robot <laughs> comics from this guy's point of view. Like, what is that about? Can we talk about that? That's I was not aware of that blow up. And just hearing you describe it, that is so strange to me. I mean, I think there's something to be said for having empathy for the fact that, like, yeah, as creatives, it's very easy to just kind of toss the opinions of retailers in the gutter as being sort of like nakedly capitalistic and blah, blah, blah. But also, it's very strange to me that that is what that guy's experience as a retailer bears out. Like, is that really the case that, like, if you're not selling simplistic punch-em-ups in the style of, like, 70s and 80s comics, you're not selling comics? Like, is that the only or at least the biggest chunk of the audience that exists? It's like, also I, a dumb argument because the 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 Miss Marvel is your example of so many people bought that fucking comic that it just makes sense that it's the next one to to do it. And the reason it sold so well, according to all the people who read it, was it was just nice to see someone different that was also still having the same si- sort of adventures. There was still punching robots in the face. <laughs> yeah, it just happened to be a brown girl doing it from a different culture so that people could see a different viewpoint and a ton of people bought it. So I think that that argument is, is correct and incorrect because I think what people forget is that there can be two or three things simultaneously existing um, and all of them be correct. So sure. There should be some comics where robots get punched in the face because those are fun. We all Mm -hmm. read them and enjoyed them, frankly, but also there's plenty of space for political ideology to be brought into comics and for storytelling to be well, brought into comics. So. And it's, it's, but just also just, it, it comes into this weird space where the, there's a bunch of old saws fighting each other. And that's what I want to kind of parse out through this part of the conversation just to get this out of the way. Cause it's a big part of my year is mm. this thing of, okay, what you just said, think multiple things could be true. Yes, there are some old white dudes who are turned off by the fact that like uh, Batman's black in the future and so is Mr. Miracle and this, that and the other. Why the fuck is this? Why the fuck is that? That's a fucking fact. That's real. But also these are seven dollar pamphlets that take four minutes to fucking read, bro. Okay, back in the days, 25 cents, you toss your fucking you toss your fucking nickel. It falls into the cup from far away. You're impressed with yourself. You grab four fucking comics. It is not that way anymore. God damn it. It is never going to be that way. These fucking things are too expensive. The writing for the trade thing is real as fuck. You know what I'm saying? They've always been serial literature. They always wanted you to come back next week. That's never changed. But, Mm -hmm. bro, you did used to be able to just go grab a Spider-Man comic, and he fought Kraven the Hunter and the Hulk in a grain silo in Ohio, and and they all went their separate ways at the end. And it was a whole story. Right. I don't see that too often from big two comics. And frankly, I don't need it from my image comics because I just want to keep finding out 
who's killing the children? You know, that something's killing uh-huh. the children. Uh, Deadly Class. I read Deadly Class for volume after volume. The class just kept getting deadlier. When are these motherfuckers <laughs> going to graduate? You know, I, yeah. I love that in my image comics. But for like, if I'm going to pick up one $6 pamphlet from Marvel, can you give me Spider-Man and the Lizard and, and the Burj Khalifa? doing some hot shit and and end it you know what i mean can you well, do that and can one we time? go back to to more newspapery look remember when the i mean it oh, used to be buddy. the cover was glossy it was the cover co- cover was glossy and the rest of the pages were like like kind of flimsy not well made dude old man comics the new imprint it's got glossy covers even certain foil covers and shit you yeah. know what i'm saying but there's sure. like three dollars yeah, nothing but gimmicks yeah. or two dollars yeah they got a gimmick cover and yes, inside newsprint, like you said, Ron, that's fucking brilliant, dude. That'd be a brilliant yeah. idea to lower cost. And that, what, I'm telling you, comics would be – it's funny how more indispensable comics were when they were more disposable. When you can get hold of them, they're more – you want to buy them. like, And sure. you should be trying to make a profit off of selling something inexpensive because if a kid can pick up – if a kid can take it, his money that he got from pulling weeds and buy six comics – that you sold six comics. I mean, I don't know, you know, I don't make comics, so I don't know how expensive it is to make that paper. I don't know. So, I mean, I, I, I think in general, you know, labor costs, paper costs, shipping costs, everything, you know, has gone up and probably as with any other industry, all of your overhead costs have gone up faster than, uh, what you're actually paying people. Um, I also though think that part of this is like, there's a difference between magazines and books and like the magazine industry worldwide has essentially cratered and magazines yeah. are disposable periodicals. Mm-hmm. The book market is as strong as it's been, at least in modern history. And like, I think there's also something to be said, bringing it all the way back around to what, to where you started, Ed, for the fact that the comic book industry is serving two masters in so much as like their first customers are, are this loose knit collection of independent retailers, mostly in the United States, but all over the world who are trying to keep their mom and pop businesses afloat. And then your secondary customers are your readers. Yeah. And like, a comics industry that wasn't beholden to this essentially unmanaged conglomerate of retailers is a comics industry that I think would have sort of left the periodical format behind a long time ago and reinvented itself in any number of ways to be webcomic subscriptions, probably with some degree of animation delivered direct to your phone via the download of an app, you know, supported by things that are written and released as books targeted toward 10-year-old, 12-year-olds make this the first thing that you think of when you're buying your kid a a Christmas gift or a birthday gift. Like, there's so many things just from a marketing and strategy standpoint that the comic book industry could do if it was more nimble and not yoked to this kind of shambling rat king of an industry of retailers. (laughs) Yeah. Shambling rat king. (laughs) Fucking love it. I mean, the classic definition of a rat king is when you have a swarm of so many rats that their tails start getting tangled and they start moving as like one organism. And honestly, like that's what the comic book retail market is. 
Yeah. Yeah. And they're all desperately trying to get free from that situation, like to be on uh, on their own because they're all supposedly independent, but they're tied to certain trends, like uh-huh. certain people's fucking dads being mad that Superman's son is gay. Why does <laughs> Superman have a son, number one? How Superman have the son make me feel old? Now he's gay. God damn, man. I, I love my gay son, but I don't want to read about a fantasy gay son. That's an extra gay son. And all these, these there are those types. How strong is your butthole got to be? <laughs> For no, no, a he's sex. a he's a bottom. Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> so, how strong does your heart on have to be? I mean, that's a whole other question right there. <laughs> but geez, the these please. are important things. I like. Oh, dude. But, okay, <laughs> I'm apparently the Jason Lee uh, from Mallrats of this group. Ron, uh, don't sell yourself short. You're Jason Muse. <laughs> You could also be uh, Jason Lee from uh, Chasing Amy. You could be any, right. any Jason Lee you want to be, buddy. Uh, <laughs> but what I was, what I'm thinking is though, this concept, that the manga situation. I don't think I've ever bought a floppy manga in my life, but I've mm-hmm. bought several, like like little trade, little books, mm-hmm. and to to Bill's point, and like little books next to toys, next to stuff. And the magazine thing being basically sort of barren, or that's the place you put the actual trades. And just make trades like I, like as disgraced as some of these create. I won't even mention them. But like if if Mark Miller at this point with a Trump flag behind him wrote an arc of some cool big character and Libra Miho or fucking Frank Cho or fucking one of these guys drew it, I'd be there with fucking bells on. And if it's a fifteen dollar book, I can get all of it in one volume. I'm jizzing all over the place. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think most of us fans would be. And I just think that that. Our podcast has been arguing for that to be the way it goes forever. So just putting a cap on this conversation right here, that's what we've been arguing more or less for forever. For all year. Top tier guys on books that you can buy for 15 bucks for the whole thing. Yep. That's better than $6 10 times or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Right. Whatever. 20 right. bucks for the whole thing rather than $6 five, 10 times. It's just, it, it's better for you and it's a better storytelling experience. And we would treat them like books to Bill's point. And I think that's what our podcast has always argued for is that unless you're going to make them disposable or make certain ash cans available for new, new stuff as lost leaders or something, those should be leading people to trades and not parsing out some bullshit. Those should be almost like samplers. They should be like yeah. 64 page fucking newsprint samplers of several graphic novels. And you could be like, Oh fuck. I love this 15 page. I love this 20 page of the graphic novel. I want to buy that shit and see the rest of that story. Yeah, I think that'd be sick. So things of this nature, I think we're going to have to see people employ out of the box thinking because $6 pamphlets aren't going, they're not selling like the 25 cent comics of your youth and they never will again. So we do have to figure that out as a, as a comic book culture. And I think that it's encouraging now that like creators have essentially, I don't want to say creators have given up on, on, you know, Marvel or DC being the top of the mountain. But I think they they recognize that like there are more opportunities to do it your own way than to just try to get picked up by one of those companies. Mm-hmm. And with with that comes the freedom to try some of these different formats and, and marketing strategies. So hopefully uh, we continue in that way and we could actually see how the how the if the money goes where our mouths is. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking great. Oh, also, last things last. People who say that comics aren't as well written these days at the big two, why would they be? We touched on this earlier. Why would mm. they be? Why would you give all of your best ideas 
to these fuckers so you could get a special thanks of four thousand dollars yep. you know and maybe get to go to the screening at the Grauman's chinese and put your fucking feet in john wayne's fucking footprints for a second and act like you're famous then go back to your old shitty house and crank out those pages to make the mortgage why yeah. would you do that literally why would you do that they've taken away the incentive to give your best ideas to those companies you know what I'm saying? And by the way, you know how, and this was another thing that was huge in the news this year for entertainment. You know how Hollywood manages to incentivize people to do that shit? They got a union that guarantees good pay, benefits, and protections um, such as royalties and, and credit and things like that. People have said that if if the comic book industry unionized it would collapse because the money's just not there. And I'm not inclined to say that's bullshit. I don't, I don't know enough. But the larger point, I think, stands that creators in an era where AI is becoming increasingly popular and in an era where we're seeing these labor actions bear fruit need to continue to fight for their own value and to recognize their own value in the marketplace. And that's, by the way, that's the only way to create an environment where, yeah, you're not scared to put your best work out for fear that, you know, it's going to be, you're essentially going to get Siegel and Schustered. That's the only way is if you have collective bargaining that can give you those protections. It's funny though, that these people own the copyrights of these characters that are so big and you can't give your best ideas to those and you're forced to compete with the very things that got you into the business in the, in the first place. Right. And right. you will fucking lose for the next maybe 10, 12, 15 years. You will lose. Maybe yeah. after that shit gets equal because nobody gives a fuck what a Superman is or any of that bullshit. Like we've seen 15 Superman movies are just like, eh, I'm over it. And maybe that would be a boon to the whole shit. But we're years away from you just coming out with your own. I was listening to the Ghost Machine guys talk, and I was just like, boy, this sounds like a story your motherfuckers wanted to do with the Green Lanterns. Dude. This sounds just like a Green Lantern <laughs> it's, story. It's oh so, God. I mean, and, and like, look, it's so funny to me. Those guys in every piece of press that they've done have been so quick to be like, these aren't superhero stories. We're not doing superheroes. These are <laughs> sci-fi and horror and crime. And it's like, I think you doth protest too much. Like, <laughs> this is very clearly just repurposed superhero shit that you're trying to give the veneer of like, no, 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 no. This is, it's not costumes. Like they're in tactical gear. Um, they have helmets. Yeah, right. But, um, lots of people have helmets. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> hey, my, my, much respect to them. No diss here. I want them to succeed. I even want Miller World to succeed. I want everybody totally. outside the machine to succeed because number one, I like the products of everybody I've mentioned on here, including Miller World. I like their products. I want them to succeed outside the machine, and I want new ideas to be as lucrative as old ideas. How about that? Uh, but actually, this is my urine review, by the way. Uh, my urine review has to do with unions. And with getting paid uh, what you deserve for being good at things. That's mm -hmm. what my year review is, 100%. Um, in my day job, we unionized and we're like on the verge of getting a huge percentage gain in how much we get paid. And when people make this argument that a company is going to go under or go bankrupt or whatever, well, you got to prove that. Especially the way that DC and Marvel are structured. Like they publish so many books. You can do any number of things to reconfigure how money is distributed. Like if you're printing less titles, 
then you have less overhead. And also like, I don't know, man, there's there there's just accounting that could make it work. So I, I wouldn't doubt that. Anybody who's great at a thing and is the person pushing the sales that you're making deserve that money. And considering that on top of that, they can be sometimes turned into movies that make billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's an argument for you to not pay those creators. And I will not hear any argument when you don't pay people a living wage, you don't have a fucking business. That's it. Right. You don't have a business. Okay. So if you prove that you don't have a business because you're giving people what they need, you don't have a fucking business. So fix your fucking business. Agreed. Yep. So now that we've hit our year in review, I just want to move us on to the next subject, which is, which is that sweet, sweet mailbag. Mailbag. <laughs> yeah. Um, you guys can send us emails. All you have to do is go to email the greatest pod at gmail.com and send us whatever your thoughts are, what you're thinking about, questions you might want to see, future episodes you might want to hear, those type of things. So we've picked a couple that I think are going to be fun to talk about. Um, I want to start with this one that talked about uh, one of our one of our most listened episodes, which is the uh, problematic character episode. It's mm. problematic characters that we still like. We talked about this whole episode where it was like, hey, here's characters that a lot of people if you look at it are problematic, but we also still enjoy them for their foibles and for their bonuses and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I will, I will die with a love for uh whiny problematic white boy heroes. I mean, it's just, you know, <laughs> dark brooding whiny white boys. I'm, I'm there all, every time. Why do you relate to that bill? I don't get it. <laughs> Who's to say? <laughs> so, so this one is from Alex Holly. He said, uh, Driss rewatch slash re-listen to the problematic character episode. And he said, in real life, I think most people are redeemable, even murderers, and society would benefit from their redemption uh, slash rehabilitation. I can say words, I swear. <laughs> um, in Christian-based faiths, faiths, if it is a big point of pride that are redeemable and that all sins can be wiped clean, even many atheists like himself, thinks that most criminals, even murderers, are a victim of social circumstances, as in they were abused, like a like a hungry dog is dangerous through no fault of its own. People are not much different. And he said, I think where we run into issues of the American, maybe just human fantasy of personal justice under our equality, we never want to think that a convicted criminal could ever be allowed to rise above those he committed crimes against. Imagine a convicted thief, learning financial responsibility and ending up wealthier than his victim. How does the victim feel if he's given back double what was taken from him? Uh, a, is the money wasted? They're no better off without it. You know, this sort of thing. A convicted murder rehabilitated into a good person, getting to live on, having kids and help his community, becoming a firefighter and saving lives. Uh, meanwhile, the victim's kid may spend his whole life dealing with the aftermath. Th those type of things. I don't want to read the whole thing, but that gives you an idea. You know, maybe the concept of a of justice as a Faustine bargain, making things right and restoring, regaining, replacing everything you lost by locking up or killing the guilty party is a lost cause. And I think that halts personal growth. What do you what do you guys think about that? We're about to get deep with uh, <laughs> the nature of pun crime and punishment here. <laughs> well, the I thing mean, is, it's I got some so, thoughts. Go ahead. Well, it's uh, just I'll just say it's always so simple in fiction. And I think in fiction, that's where we can play out our fantasies of rehabilitation. Like fucking Loki killed a billion fucking people. And all of a sudden he's a good guy because people, mm -hmm. frankly, can relate to you more if you kill a billion people. Vader 
same thing. Like mm. when you kill a billion people, if you stab two grandmas, man, you're a piece of shit for life, period. There ain't it, no listen, redemption, nothing. It wasn't until Anakin killed those fucking kids that yep. anybody had any problem with Vader. <laughs> Dude, exactly. He blew up Alderaan. And if, uh, I, I saw a meme. It was like uh, Princess Leia was talking to like a distraught Luke Skywalker, and they revealed that that was approximately three or four minutes after the scene where Alderaan got blew up, and she's consoling fucking space wizard boy it's like her she, they they flew through the detritus of her planet her people were bouncing off the fucking windshield like locusts you know and and she's <laughs> she's over caring giving a this hug boy. to him. you know yeah. what i'm saying it's, it's so ridiculous but but anyway the point is yeah billions of people killed we can totally redeem you you try to stab laurie strode one time all of a sudden you're an asshole if if michael myers killed a billion people We'd have a fucking hero show about Michael Myers and how he stabs people for good now or whatever the fuck. Mm. Well, it's, and, and it's I weird think it's, how the numbers work. And I think it's easier in fantasy because the the real life consequences are taken out. Like, don't get me wrong, um, a murderer in self defense, a guy who's become so desperate because his family's starving that he, you know, robs a store, freaks out, and shoots someone, spends thirty years in jail, and then gets out and tries to like talk kids into not, you know, doing that or teaches them how to make money because while he was in college, while he was in jail, he like read a bunch of rich dad, poor dad books or some shit like that. <laughs> Great. And, and that's all possible. But like, look, sometimes people are psycho, like serial killers are not redeemable. You take serial killers out of jail. They just start serial killing again. I can't remember this guy's name and I wish I could have, but I can't pull it off the top of my head. Uh, but he killed like five people, got caught killing all these five people in like a pretty crazy ass way. But then he went to jail and he learned to write and he wrote these like beautiful poems and stories and plays. And then he got out of jail because they thought, oh, he seems redeemed now. And then he immediately started murdering people again. Yeah. And that's the whole point is like sometimes you think people are redeemable, but I'm telling you, psychopaths are not redeemable. Anybody that has these conditions, most of the time they are 100 percent caused by trauma. Right. Yeah. And you could have empathy for that. But there's also no solution. Yeah. And so psychopaths, most of them come from horrifically abusive backgrounds, but you also can't cure psychopathy. There is a lot to be said for the fact that our culture has for a long time demonized criminals to a very problematic degree. Yes. And we would do very, very well. And I think it's been happening at least for like the past 10 years. We would do very well to rein that in and start looking with more nuance at what criminality is and what it means. But the idea that Everyone can be redeemed is hopelessly utopian. And and beyond the fact that like sometimes the brain is just damaged irreparably, there's also an assumption in the way that that email is written that if people were to get healthy, they would assume some sort of responsibility to society. And I don't think that's correct either. I don't think that just just because you have been rehabilitated means that you are going to then become somehow a quote unquote constructive member of society. I think that people who just want 
personal financial security, even on through personal comfort in their life, there's nothing inherently immoral or even amoral about that. And I think the idea that like, all right, I, you know, I'm charged with manslaughter, right? Like, or second degree murder. It's not premeditated. I was robbing somebody. Things went wrong. I ended up shooting somebody, but you know what? I'm going to serve my time and, you know, get out in 30 years for them to be rehabilitated. That doesn't mean that they're going to come out and become, you know, an anti-violence advocate serving the community. Like, that person can be rehabilitated and come out and just be like, you know what? I want to get my bag and retire somewhere. And so mm-hmm. I'm just going to fucking work wherever I can. And then I want to make enough money that I could go be comfortable and don't have to fuck around with anybody. Like, yeah, that's also fine. And so we also need to think about like what rehabilitation actually means. It means you've paid your debt to society. And so the idea that like, oh, if we rehabilitate you, you're going to come and contribute something is not an assumption we should carry. I think we've conflated psychopathy with the guy who goes, ah, fuck, I didn't know it was loaded. I'm just a junkie asshole. You know what I mean? Mm. Our society has conflated psychos and so-called super predators, as they Mm. used to say back in the the Biden (laughs) days. Uh Uh-huh. Early Biden days. (laughs) Early Biden days. Uh, uh, You know, we we would call these people all these words that were basically the same thing as psycho just because they would commit crimes over and over that were of like a thief nature or of a, a, a gang banger. Like I run this neighborhood, I sell drugs or whatever. We, we conflated those with actual psychopathy because some people in those organizations were psychos, just like the fucking teamsters. Teamsters are a bunch of good guys. Some of them lazy, some of them very hardworking, some of them grafting, some of them just trying to get by teamsters are all those things. And a few of them from the Irishman are psychos who will shoot mm. you in your fucking mouth for, for, for not doing X, Y, and Z because there's for millions of dollars. Yeah. For the workers, certainly. So there's, there's all, there's, there's all these things that are up in the air. There's all these different types of people in different organizations. So we can conflate all crime as they're all psychos and they're incorrigible. But I like your point about that. Once they serve their debt to society, just serve yourself and don't bother anybody. That's the way you could keep your debt paid. I mean, I have two stories in my life of people that were sad and one who didn't deserve it and one that probably did in the long run eventually deserve it. But, you know, one of my friends was, uh, I'll start with the guy who probably deserved it. Uh, one of the guys I used to hang out with, Brandon, who was part Dude. Spanish, part white. Why are you um, naming this guy? He's dead. <laughs> he's oh, dead. Okay, then. They're both dead, by the way. Because um, oh. that's how I live my life. I just have friends who die from doing dumb shit. This these guy, are people who died, who died. <laughs> yeah, right. You're burying the lead because you said these guys were sad, not dead. Yeah, they're 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 sad and dead because you okay. know they're his dad. <laughs> God damn. And they're sad. They're dead because they were sad. <laughs> How am this I making is about this to funny? get even How is darker? This so funny. Keep going, man. Keep going. Keep so, going. So basically, Brandon's dad left him when he was a kid. And his dad was uh, part Spanish. He became racist because he didn't like that half of himself. He joined uh, the skinheads in Albuquerque. He committed a bunch of crimes, went to jail, and then died doing some skinhead shit. Mm. And at some point in his life, he became a psycho. Like, I remember when we were kids, I stopped hanging out with him because I could see this glint of this lack of empathy that had 
gotten created by being treated badly by his mom, by doing a little too many drugs and, and, and all this other stuff that then he escalated all of that into doing real crimes later on. I was away from that at that point, but I read like articles on the dude basically. Um, and then my other friend was this kid, Zach. I lived in the complex with that guy, played basketball with him. We did, uh, a, a we did a complex Olympics where we would run around the complex a certain amount of times. We'd race that. We made a, <laughs> an obstacle course where we'd go through the bars, do a flip off the swing. His dad also left when he was pretty young. His mom, drugs, uh, already with gangbangers, hanging out with, with, uh, with gangbangers. He ended up joining a gang. And during some drug dealing shit, he got shot uh, uh, with a shotgun during some drug dealing shit. And part of it was that he was super poor. His mom was already in the life. And that one's more sad because I'm telling you, this kid was not a psycho. He was just a kid. Mm -hmm. And he was a kid who got pushed into some shit because of of the way he was. And and I truly feel that if he had ended up, you know, getting a redemptive arc possible, he is a person who could have been redeemable. And so, like, part of me is like when I see that stuff, those are the people I do believe are redeemable. People sort of forced into scenarios from being poor from having, you know, family backgrounds that were already in this shit, um, you know, and this kid committed crimes because he didn't have food. Well, and, you know and I mean, I, yeah, and that gets into the, the, the convergence of criminality with, you know, just what the social safety net is in the United mm-hmm. States, which is everything exactly. from welfare to child care to education. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... What I will say about that, though, is I think at the bottom of the social safety net is essentially the quality of prisons. And prison reform Mm -hmm. continues to be a huge issue in the United States because whether that's, you know, the last catch for a guy like you're talking about or whether that's for somebody who is like a premeditated murderer, the idea that like, hey, you might premeditate murder and rape and rightfully end up in prison, but you could still be redeemed. That might be true, but realistically, if you premeditate murder or rape, you need to stay in prison. You need to be removed from society, whether you want to call that punishment or whether you want to call that a safety measure for the rest of the people. I think there's a lot of good arguments to be made, but I think the corollary to that is Prison should be a place where you could redeem yourself and become productive. And what we don't have in the United States is a prison system where we are actively encouraging people, get more education, get more spiritual education, have contact with the outside world in a productive way, and find avenues to actually like make money and support your family, even though you are incarcerated. And, and also, like, real quick, make sure prisons are safe enough that now well, that yep. you're some kind of zen pussy, right. that you're not going to get stabbed in your eyes 50 fucking times right. going to the library to get your fucking fifth law degree. And You know what I'm saying? Like, you got to make it safe enough to where you can make that transition. Because a lot of people, I was going to make the point of indoctrination, and it was happening in both the stories you told, Ron. There yep. was, in both of those cases, there's this weird praying by organizations, be it the fucking army Mm-hmm. Or the f- gangs, whatever gang you talk about, army, regular gang, MS-13, fucking the warriors, the whatever the clan. fuck you talk about, the clan, 
all that shit is just gangs you can join for all these different socio and socioeconomic and political reasons, right? And all of those come with a certain um, indoctrination. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And like, ah, we got to make some kind of special case or special field of prisonry for people who are indoctrinated a certain way because they have to be dismantled mentally from the inside, even if they're not a psycho. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? There are people who no, it's have essentially like beliefs. Yeah, it's yeah. like cult deprogramming, essentially. Yes, yes, yes. And, so, and, and again, it's like we we hit a tangent with some huger issue in society, which is just the availability of mental health care mm-hmm, and the yep. subsidization, subsidization of mental health care so that it becomes both affordable and accessible for people even at the bottom rung of the socioeconomic ladder. It's complicated. In a high quality, by the way. In a high quality. Right. <laughs> Well, and and even if if not even a high quality, at least with like a focus and follow through. Yeah. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, I get it. You're not going to have the most talented and sought after psychologists working on prison deprogramming. However, those people should be paid enough, safe enough and and given the facilities that they can follow through and implement their own programs as opposed mm-hmm. to just being thrown away you give mental health to everyone no matter how much money they have and you make sure that most people have enough money a lot of these problems fucking disappear (laughs) yeah well yeah i I was just gonna say which if we just really need to think outside the box though because all this jazz about money it's not gonna happen because there's more money in making new prisons that are just the same or even worse the cheapest materials the quickest assembly the least staff for the most amount of prisoners. That is the way to make money in the prison system. So that being the case, let's just think outside the box. All these motherfuckers in prison that are getting degrees, let them be the fucking staff. So Dr. Murder is going to talk to some well, of by these the way, I mean, people. that should... No, <laughs> but know? honestly, like, that for should real. be happening. And, and, yeah. and I think in a, in a healthy society, like, because prison is used as, like, a way to keep dangerous people outside of regular society... It should kind of be a self-sustaining ecosystem in some degree. Yeah, yeah. Interesting idea. <laughs> but again, you then, as the prison, would be obligated to like pay those people and take care of them as working professionals, which, to your point, Ed, there's no incentive to do that. And here's where, Ed, you become more conservative than the rest of us, because <laughs> to me, I hear you say all that shit, and I don't chalk that up as like, that's a lost battle and it's never going to change. Literally, you could change all that shit about for-profit prisons with one piece of legislation. And the only problem is they don't pass it. And the only problem with that is who people vote for. And so, you know, that's something that I feel like there is a real opportunity to change a lot of this shit that we're talking about. You just got to pay attention. You got to care more about everything we just talked about than whatever somebody's stance is on abortion. You know what I mean? Hey, and that's, you are absolutely correct. And that's why we have to resort to Dr. Murder. Dr. Murder, (laughs) murder lawyer, like all these different guys, the jailhouse lawyers, like a straight murderer that learned how to be a lawyer. Uh, The fucking, the the house psychologist is like a super Hannibal Lecter type. He smells your lotion and he tells you all the stuff about your childhood and breaks all these prisoners down, makes them cry and shit, makes them self-actualize, even though he wants to rip their faces off. All this different shit. That's the staff. And you're worried about how you're going to pay them. Airdrop some cigarettes. I don't fucking know. Let's get into the real criminal economy. Cigarettes, oh. condoms, Twinkies, <laughs> fucking Fruitopia from 1996 that we got a warehouse. Well, and, and, the and, fuck. and hey, and if you're talking, if you're talking about Dr. Murder, he wants to rip people's faces off normally, you just drop pedophiles into a cell. 
Yeah, yeah. Give that's him his, one or two a year. Give him yeah. one or two a year. Well, we got to move on to the next email because this is getting too problematic. <laughs> yeah, it is 100%. I'm cutting it off at the pass. <laughs> but also, I just want to say before before we move on, thanks, Alex, for the email. Also, guys, if you just heard that and enjoyed it, send us more emails because we will do this every once in a while because it's uh, it's really fun. Next one is uh, anime suggestion for Bill is the subject line. Oh, love this. Says, yeah. Hello, buddies. Uh, thanks for the recent great episode sneak peek, Bill. Uh, and then Bill, qu- uh, exclamation point. Please start your anime journey not with Akira, even with all the legitimate reasons to praise it, but with the film Princess Mononoke by Studio Ghibli in 1997. This studio is one of the best places to begin. Two main directors with very different styles and storytelling techniques. We just did this film in the anime club I'm part of. And even among well-versed anime viewers of many years, it still conjured a great discussion in the club. I suggested for a few first viewing, watching the Japanese language version with English subtitles. However, if you decide to go with the English dub after reading the cast, it's okay. Mm-hmm. This was the way I experienced this film for many years. I hope you take to heart from a fan who truly wishes to add this art form to your experiences so that it can influence future topics, discussions, or points you make in podcast episodes. Many times you've with Ron and Ed uh, through contact clues and conversation have proven your concise and conscious analysis of a detail and elaborated on it in a very in a way that I can understand and gain a greater interest in the subject of the episode while coming out of it feeling actually informed and having a lot of fun. Thank you for all your hard work, buddies. Uh, Christian, um, also Kiryu Christian. Um, so... What a Thank what a so nice much. yeah what a nice email first of all and I'm glad that he's getting out of the podcast exactly what we want people to get out of the podcast so that's always heartening and thank you for that suggestion Princess Mononoke and Miyazaki's filmography in general has been on my list I feel like since film school and there's no good reason that I haven't gotten to any of it which is crazy so I am going to take that suggestion um I recently started watching Pluto on Netflix, which is essentially like, I think it's from not the creator of Astro Boy, but possibly the creator of Astro Boy, but somebody that's done a lot of Astro Boy. He's essentially telling like a more adult kind of conspiracy version of the Astro Boy story. And it's a series called Pluto on Netflix. I've only seen the first episode. Uh, I did watch it dubbed, and I enjoyed the shit out of it. So I'm ready to start my anime journey, and I'm going to take this to heart and go with Princess Mononoke. I love that you're. I love your pick uh, for a specific reason. I know a like a 14 year old girl that uh, is Ariel's best friend's daughter who loves anime, but she only likes Studio Ghibli. Mm-hmm. So she'll grow in like other stuff eventually. But you know, when you're 14, you you've decided the thing that's the coolest is the coolest, and you stick with the coolest. Um, <laughs> well, it's also a little bit like Pixar, right? Like for the longest time, I didn't want to watch any computer animated films other than Pixar films. Yeah. And then because Pixar set such a high standard, everybody else eventually caught up. Um, and so, you know, obviously Studio Ghibli has been around for a very long time and making movies. But I think we're probably in an era where a lot of other studios have caught up. And it's just a matter of like, once you start with the best, you got to make your way to the rest eventually. So yeah, 100%. Um, So that, that was that email and Christian, we appreciate you giving us the email and giving us the suggestion. And once we, once he, once, uh, once Bill watches it, maybe we'll do an episode on it. Honestly, I'll probably watch it over the Christmas uh, break. So 
you know, coming in strong in 2024, I'm down for it. Yeah. And I think, I think us kind of doing, um, it's been suggested off air, but I'll, I'll let the people know that we're, we're, we're thinking about it, doing more, um, the making of something great or how to make something great and Mm -hmm. looking at some super great piece of work like this and breaking down like all the decisions from our point of view that were, that were great and contributed to its greatness. So perhaps we'll do a long form episode like that on, on princess Mononoke. I think that could be a a nice little episode there. Agreed. hundred percent. So now we'll move on to Angie E says the greatest vehicles and the subject line. And uh, Angie, we already know, by the way, because she has been on uh, Rebooted uh, comments many times. So here's what she said, though. Hello, uh, I've been a fan of you guys for a long time. It started back with Ed on Movie Fights, then Nerd Goat, and Rebooted to the Greatest Pod. Um, I always enjoy your conversations and have occasionally learned some new words from Bill. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? Uh, I'll take it. Yeah, I legit had to stop an episode and go on dictionary.com to look up a word you once used. (laughs) Uh, Angie, if it makes you feel any better, I've had to do that myself. Um, And I read a ton. So um, I recently listened to your episode on the greatest vehicles in pop culture and was very happy that you mentioned the TARDIS. I love Doctor Who. Something to know about the TARDIS is is that it is alive. Uh, there was one episode where someone put the essence of the TARDIS into a human body and she got to actually talk to the doctor. The back and forth between the two of them was really good. The human body was too weak for the TARDIS, so she had to go back inside the machine at the end. It's a great episode. Lastly, I wanted to recommend you guys watch the Cowboy Bebop anime. There isn't a lot of lore to get into and the series is relatively short, only about 30 episodes, I believe. It also has some great spaceships. The show is part Western, part gangster, part sci-fi with a lot of great music. Thanks, Angelita. Ah, Angelita. Nice. Oh, and I I second the Cowboy Bebop thing. There was a period in my life where I was sort of an adult swim head. Uh, I think that's why I'm so right wing now. Anyway, um, I was was an adult swim head looking at all that shit. And uh, Cowboy Bebop is, it's just, for my money, some of or maybe the coolest anime in my personal opinion. It just, yeah. it reeks of cool. Everybody's cool. Everybody's collected. Even when they're not, they're, they're trying to strive for that. Their bounty hunting adventures are very episodic, even though they have certain recurring characters, the, the episodic nature of it is so perfect. You get a, a beautiful story unit in every episode uh, that I've seen. And the characters are really cool and play off each other very well. And the main guy, Spike, is just too slick for words. He's yeah. amazing. He's like a really amazing, cool character without being uh, uh, a Mary Sue, as mm-hmm. as, the, as the dorks say. So yeah, mm-hmm. I would Cowboy Bebop can't can't recommend it enough. Cowboy Bebop and Ninja Scroll are Miyazaki me. Those were the yeah. anime that I watched first off, and Yoshiaki Kawajiri uh, anime and and that shit. And like something like Princess Mononoke, they set a standard where I just kind of don't know how people watch a lot of this other shit. You know what I'm saying? So uh, Cowboy Bebop's up there, bro. Yeah, 100%. Two good suggestions. Um, Also want to mention the TARDIS uh, being alive is totally interesting. Um, I don't know if there's any other alive vehicles, but that's like a great concept. I would would love more alive vehicles. Not counting kit sorry ed i didn't mean to, uh you knew i, I saw to get i there. saw your i saw your heart jump out of your chest like motherfucker i hate ai in real life because because it isn't kit that's where yeah. they're fucking up they're calling some bullshit that just steals people's art kit 
That's yeah. not Kit's AI. God damn it. More than how 9,000. He's a fucking <laughs> real guy. Well, so two things. Um, I forgot when we were doing the episode, but I did know that because that episode of Doctor Who is like hugely beloved by the fans. Um, I I do know that much. But that also, number two, makes me think of The Carrier from The Authority, which probably uh, probably has a somewhat of a ripoff maybe of Doctor Who or maybe it went the other way. I'm not sure what the new Doctor Who versus The Authority timeline is, but... The carrier was also alive and sentient and not able to speak with a human voice or interact like a Hale 9000. But like the engineer um, who was like the cyborg member of the team could communicate with the carrier and understood that it had its own mind. So uh, I love that concept, uh, especially because it, it dovetails a little bit with like concepts of what aliens could be you know like Hmm. just because it thinks doesn't mean that we could communicate with it on any meaningful level um yeah yeah i love shit like that 100 percent um and uh so thank you uh angelita ellison for um you know sending us a message keep sending in guys and she's been down since day one. And I really, I really do appreciate her because like uh, the stuff that she would say in the chat and reboot, it was always smart too. So, so thank you, Angie. Yeah. And then we also got uh, Matthew Robinson. Uh, it says, hello during your hiatus. Um, uh, this was a, a little while ago, but I think it's a, a good one. First off, uh, Bill, I'm going to need you to say hello boys in your John Peters impression voice. <laughs> All right, well, Gil, let me see if I can conjure it. <clears throat> Hello, boys. Perfect. <laughs> like hope we you're all left. well. <laughs> <laughs> says he, uh, Matthew says, hope you're all well. Seems like you've been on a bit of a hiatus lately. We did have a little bit of a hiatus. Uh, so I decided to check in and let you all know how much I appreciate what you do. I loved your shows for years. I think I started listening around the fifth or sixth episode of Nerd Goat, and I haven't missed one yet. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, we've had six years of podcasts all together from Nerd Goat, uh, Greatest Pod, and on Rebooted on YouTube. So we really appreciate you guys doing that and sticking around for all of that. It's uh, amazing, and I appreciate it. Uh, and then Matthew said, I'm really glad that some of those are showing back on the YouTube channel. I'll be looking forward to revisiting some of those. Yeah, we're putting them up, you guys. You guys. Definitely check it out. But here's a couple of thoughts that came to my mind lately. First, have you had any further thoughts to to doing a review on Mike Magnolia's art as an episode? If you're getting into it, take a look at Sergio Toppi's work. I recently had a revelation reading through his collector book, and it suddenly slapped me in the face of how much his work is built into Magnolia's mature style. Um, some of this might have come to the pulpy Indiana Jones nature of the collector stories, which overlap a lot in style and tone with Mignola's Hellboy series, but also the visual style. If you just black out a lot more areas than Toppy would hatch and make the characters a little more cubist, you've got Mignola. I haven't heard Mignola's list Toppy as a direct influence, so I'm curious if he just sort of found himself in the same place artistically through happenstance or if it was intentional. Anyways, I would love a breakdown of his art by you geniuses, and it would be fascinating to me. <laughs> wow. That's oh, yeah, uh, that's a little too kind. <laughs> but <laughs> all, the, all that said, uh, Mignola is definitely high on the list of guys that we want to dedicate a, a full kind of artistic breakdown episode to. 
Because yeah, yeah, there's there's so much uh, variance in his art from the beginning. Everybody progresses, but Mike Mignola had something from the beginning, and you just saw it get more and more refined. It wasn't almost like he comes in not being able to draw. He comes in being able to draw just fine, really good, doing superhero stuff. But then he does these Hulk covers. Then you know he does that that uh, DC book where he had to draw every DC character and mm. so on and so forth. All these books like pile onto each other. And it, and then he goes to Hellboy and becomes like, it, it's like he busts out of a chrysalis. So that progression would be perfect for an, for an art video slash uh, podcast. The, uh, the comparison to Toppy is interesting too. I mean, he's got to be talking about Toppy's, um, uh, like composition more than anything because Toppy comes from, or Topi as it might, as it might be, but comes from, he's an Italian artist and he mm-hmm. comes from that sort of European comics tradition of I, I don't know how else to put it but just incredible amounts of rendering you know like mm-hmm. mobius with all the thousands of tick marks and even like herge you know obviously is a very stripped down style but if you look at his backgrounds and such like there's a lot of detail in it and such is the case with topi's work i mean it's almost it's almost like renaissance inspired it's like or or like elbrick durer with the um with the engravings, like he just uses so many lines. What a weird comparison to draw to Mignola. But now it's like, I want to look up more of Toppy's work and see where he's seeing those, those connections. Yeah. And and they did say that like, if, if you envision areas more blacked out, but it's, I find it's like, uh, I can see, I really can see some of the, um, uh, the Frank Frazetta influence in Mignola, not just if, if you tried to draw one of his paintings, you'd end up blacking out a lot of it because you just you can't do those colors. You can't approximate that if you're trying to pencil it or ink it. And also, when you look at Frank Frazetta's like pen and ink work, I look at Mike Mignola right next to it. And some of the 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 barbarian blocky forms are th- are there even in something as fantastically drawn as Frazetta stuff. It's like mm. Mignola kind of looks at these artists and strips them down. Uh, mm. to a functional thing that you could draw on like a monthly basis. You know what I mean? And not that that was his his goal, but just he, that's how he wants to see things more chiaroscuro or whatever, which I, I totally get that. And that's well before the, the influence of Frank Miller trying to make all those super black and white, almost Alex Tothy looking comics. He was doing, he was trying to go that direction in mainstream comics well before. Yeah. Mm. My favorite artists, I think, are the people who are the most unique where it's like, and that's the same thing with like good voices or not even good voices per se, but voices where you're like, oh, that's yeah. that's that person. I know that's that person that can't be anybody else. You could hear them singing with a totally different band and you'd be like, that is that person. Yeah. So, and, and and to the down to the point of people, you know, the fucking uh, Getty Lee from Rush, fucking goddamn uh, Macy fucking Gray, uh, Bob Dylan, uh, yep. to a certain extent, Tom Petty, who is Bob Dylan. Uh, you know, <laughs> a lot, a lot of different, and don't, don't get it twisted. Me and Tom Petty go on road trips all the time. I'm, I'm playing running down a dream, driving through fucking Arizona two weeks ago. Okay. <laughs> so, so don't get it twisted. But I am saying like, there's these people who have this standout vocal quality that is not necessarily Pavarotti shit or, or Robert Plant shit or buddy guy or anybody that you think is a great rock vocalist. There isn't, they, they don't have that thing. Uh, you know, they have something else. That is mm-hmm. identifiable. And I think Mignola has that. And when you look at his interpretation of the world, like you said, style, style of the mistakes you make over and over again. You know what I'm saying? He doesn't want to draw 
X, Y, Z. He didn't draw. Dude, they talk about Rob Liefeld didn't draw no feet. Mike Mignola didn't draw no feet till 1998. Okay. <laughs> Which was probably <laughs> when he figured out how to do it well. Well, dude, I mean, no, I mean, I think he he always knew how to do it. It was a it was a thing of like, I don't want to fucking do that. I'm gonna yeah. figure out a composition where I don't need that because X, Y, Z, and then it's because Hulk is standing in a pool and the pool is reflective of himself, and or he's flying through space and his feet are obscured or whatever the fuck. It's almost like its own sort of problem solving. Not drawing the shit you don't want to draw is almost its own problem solving that can give you all these different styles. And like you don't want to draw a bunch of fingers splayed out. The way that the way that Mike Mignola and the way that um, Joe Casada draw fists, it's so weird. It's so weird, but it's like, I think it came from some sort of necessity when they were young. And then when they learned how to draw fingers, they draw fingers, they draw, they do, they do it all. But that <laughs> fist arrived first, that super well rendered fist arrived first. And then they learned all about all the, the, you know, metacarpals and shit. All that said, we will do a Mike Mignola look on you. Look forward to that. That's going to happen. We just basically uh, almost busted into a mini one. Like he's, he's mutagen. He's yeah. artistic mutagen. He, he makes you want to talk about him. So you, I'm, you got it. I'm biting my tongue. So just to, yeah, just to save it for it. the episode. That's, that's what we're exactly. going to do. You guys are going to listen to a future episode. He also goes on to say, secondly, I'm curious to hear what you all think of Wes Anderson's filmography. My initial assumption is that you all hate it, especially Ed, question mark. <laughs> but I'm curious if that's true or not. His work is certainly iconoclastic, and I was noticing that there's a lot of the mythic tone in his storytelling. So I'm curious what your thoughts on his works are, maybe a future episode. Uh, regardless, I appreciate you fellows and hope you're all doing well. Last things last, get them comics done. Matt Robinson. I know. Yeah. Oh, God damn. Yeah, especially Bill. Because God, I'm working. Damn. I'm, Dude, I'm Bill's working. He's killing it. Yeah. He's, he's killing it. You, 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 you would cream your jeans if you saw all the pages that I've seen. It's it's yeah. crazy how good Bill is doing, and and the work the work shows it, it shows in the work how much uh, time and, and effort he's putting into it. Um, but uh, I'll just I'll just real quick. Bottle Rocket sucks ass. Okay, Bottle Rocket sucks ass. I kind Rushmore, of that. Rushmore is good to me. Royal Tannenbaum's is also good. Then I feel as though it takes a little dip. I think I Love Dogs is fucking dumb as shit. I do not understand it. I hate it. I hate the cast. I hate the way the story is told. I hate who the story is told through. I think, you know, we start running into the type of people that Wes Anderson just lets talk and lets have characters. It's not that he doesn't put minorities in his pictures. I hate when people say that shit. It's just the people that you really give a fuck about are not them normally. And the situation doesn't really need them normally and i think that's a little problematic but fucking um royal tenenbaums is fucking good to me a story of a family who thought they were going to be the shit and just came apart from neuroses and shit i fucking love that movie and i love rushmore so if he just did those two shits he'd be a towering director to me so i really don't care oh and fantastic mr motherfucking fox if i were going to pick three movies out of his shit fantastic mr fox royal tenenbaums and rushmore if you just watch those three that motherfucker is a genius you watch all the rest of that shit it starts to get a little rocky that's my 30 50,000 foot view of wes anderson um contrary to what this guy thinks i fucking love wes anderson <laughs> now i will caveat that by saying like i can recognize acknowledge and sometimes even agree with a lot of the things said against wes anderson's work i think the royal tenenbaums is a masterpiece mm -hmm. i think the grand budapest hotel is a masterpiece i think there's something to be said for the french dispatch being a masterpiece mm. even though i think it was 
too weird for a lot of people. Yeah, but um, set design and, and, lo- and location or whatever, however they shot it, was well, pretty and, fucking interesting. And even a lot of the experimenting that he's been doing in his scripts with just how he constructs these narratives and like the weird nested framing devices and the fact that the French Dispatch was essentially like a collection of short stories in movie form. Honestly, I recently, I haven't watched all of them, but he he did those, that suite of Raul Dahl um, adaptations for Netflix. Mm. I watched the, uh, the Henry Sugar one. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I will agree with Ed. I think Bottle Rocket sucks. Uh, I also think Isle of Dogs is probably his we- the weakest of his modern movies. But on top of the masterpieces that I already listed, I fucking love Moonrise Kingdom. I fucking love The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. I fucking love The Darjeeling Limited. I have a thick-ass... Um, I don't know if it's Ad House Books or Tashin. I think it's a Tashin book that's just the films of Wes Anderson on my bookshelf behind me. I think the production design and cinematography in his movies in that Mike Mignola way, like, look, it might not be the most technically amazing or, you know, most evocative thing you could possibly do, but it's so goddamn unique and so specific to his voice that I will take that shit intravenously, shoot it into my veins. I don't talk about him a lot because I recognize his limitations, and I think he is a bit twee, especially for the kind of geek audience that we're often speaking to here. But I love Wes Anderson, and I'm always excited when he has a new project. Just to be clear, too, I like that dude at the table at Reservoir Dogs where he goes, hey, man, when Madonna got to her Papa Don't Preach phase, I tuned out. I got to right around Isle of Dogs area and I and even a certain aspects of Dar- uh, Darjeeling Limited, actually. And I was just like, I don't know that I like it here. I, I like the family dynamics that were in some of the other works that I cited from, you know, Fantastic to uh, Tannenbaums to Rushmore. I just felt like and like and like Rushmore, I don't want to like somebody's, you know their their first album meaning their second album you know that second album right, that right, gets right. the pop the incesticide to never mind you know i don't like being like that but rushmore was just like i went to private school not quite that fucking private we were still getting our ass beat and shit and having to get on the bus and fight you know fight regular kids but like the it I did go to a private school and I saw that weird track of kids who were like supposed to be geniuses. And I saw that track of kids who were just supposed to do what their daddy did. And I like related a bit to that actually. And I, mm. I and the, the, the loss of that feeling of like, you, you know, you're supposed to be the dope one in my family. I was the first person in my whole family, I think to go to college. So like Max being like, like me, a shitty student, who sucked ass and just lived in his head all the time and maybe was a genius, but not within the structure of school. So everything else about school he loved, like, I just don't feel like there's themes as big as those and the, the themes of loss and, 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 um, and loss of potential and stuff in Tannenbaums and some of the later stuff. It is sometimes it seems like white boys having fun. And that's the worst part of him, which is what I think Bottle Rocket is about. Bottle Rocket mm-hmm. is too much. White boys having fun. The world is our oyster. It's almost like the hangover for losers. You know what I'm saying? In a certain yeah, way. yeah. Um, I think I think uh, I think that's true. I think of his modern movies. First of all, I'm 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 also on board with your feelings about Rushmore. I didn't mention it, but I think Rushmore's great. But I think he gets back to those deeper themes in the Grand Budapest Hotel. Okay, which is is really this 
ultimately very kind of melancholy and somber view of both aging, but also like just what human decency means. Mm. And like, and, and there's, there's some really complicated thematic things going on in the grand Budapest hotel. And for me, there are moments in that movie where I'll tear up every time I watch them, which is kind of a weird thing with a Wes Anderson movie, especially like modern day Wes Anderson, where it's like so mannered and staged it's like, how can this really evoke emotion? But I, I sometimes I think he just finds that vein. And, and I agree with you, Ed, that a lot of times it feels kind of superfluous or like, you know, fun for fun's sake. But when he finds those veins of emotion, he taps them. Yeah. So if I was going to say great, great filmmaker or or not great, he's great. Period. Mm. I don't know what anybody's talking about. We spent the we talk about year in the view, year in review. The last summer, remember when everybody was doing Wes Anderson parodies? Yeah, all summer. Yeah, all different types of people. Hip hop, fucking Wes Anderson properties. People in Deutschland doing it. People, people in the North Pole doing shit out in the snow with symmetrical frames and shit. People uh, uh, AI filters to make your world look like it. Come on, man. That's that's zeitgeist oh. shit right there. That's yeah. Zeitgeist. That's zeitgeist shit. Yeah. Well, let me say this, though. Whenever Wes Anderson makes a martial arts movie, then maybe I'll fucking watch Son of the Saints. <laughs> By the way, that would be awesome. That yeah. would be fucking, fucking fantastic. Because <laughs> yeah, to be frank, I don't think I've seen any of his movies. I, however, have watched all of the martial arts films, and as soon as he makes one, I'm in. <laughs> Just perfectly symmetrical <laughs> frames and people coming in. Uh, it has occurred to me that I must beat your ass. Why? Dude, <laughs> dude I'm telling you, I good. a Wes Anderson martial arts movie could fucking win an Oscar, dude. Like that... <laughs> The incongruity of that mashup is just delicious. Uh, dude, yeah. Dude, check it out. A fucking a black belt is placed on a table. A bunch of pictures from karate t- tournaments are set on a table. Uh, a bell is rung at a fucking fighting match. <laughs> fucking, and a guy pulls his gi tight. Hi, I'm Sam. I'm fucking, oh, my God. Dude, yes. I got to check out Grand Budapest Hotel. Maybe that'll get me back on the, on the train. I, I would be curious to hear your thoughts because it's – like his earlier work but with a lot of the affectations of his more modern work so i think it could be kind of divisive but i would love to hear your thoughts oh hell yeah so maybe hey maybe it'll maybe we'll do uh wes anderson versus somebody for like remember we did that scorsese versus spielberg yeah we did wes anderson versus somebody ah we're producing on the air i mean yeah Yeah. i struggle to think like who's a director that has as like specific a tone and vision as Wes Anderson to kind of put him up against. It just, that feels a little like apples and oranges, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, No, I mean, wasn't Scorsese and Spielberg. I mean, like that's what, well, they came up with each other though. And they took two different paths. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's true. Together at one point. And then they take two different paths, one more commercial than the other. So like, we got to pick somebody who's like a commercial version. JJ Abrams. Wes Anderson. No, you know who it should be is Spike Jones. Spike Jones. See, that's sweet. There you go. That's an episode. Wes Anderson versus uh, Spike Jones. Who's the the greatest? That's a fucking bang. Holy shit. Yeah. That's a great episode. So so let's just say uh, right away, uh, thank you so much, Matthew, because now we have two episodes that we'll be doing next year that you helped suggest. In fact, everybody who emailed us, thank you so much. Like, we love this sort of thing. Part of what we love about this podcast is it feels like we're hanging out with our buddies, which we are right now. Literally, we're three friends 
chatting about things that we truly enjoy. And when you guys join in the conversation, it's like more friends coming to the Denny's and showing up and putting mm-hmm. some money in for the check. So please keep sending us emails at email the greatest pod. Keep leaving us reviews. The reviews help us move up in the charts so more people get to hear this and get to join in on the conversation. And uh, if you really feel like throwing us some money, some ducats, as uh, some people like to say, mm-hmm. get on the Greatest Pod Patreon. It's patreon.com slash the greatest pod. You'll get even more depth, even more personal uh, episodes on there with, I guess, three years, four years of back content. So you're talking to, like, you sign up for a Patreon, you're getting like your money's worth 100%. So, yep. Just to incentivize more five star reviews, if you write us a five star review, I think we should start reading those in voices. Like uh, oh, Matthew yeah. Robinson. Matthew Robinson just wanted me to do the John Peters voice. I'll read a whole goddamn review as John Peters. Ron will read them as Night Wang. Like we'll bust <laughs> out those those yeah. voiceover skills for your five star reviews. Ed will do every voice he does, which is a New York lady voice. <laughs> yeah, the New York lady. That's all my voices. <laughs> Get me in. Why are my fucking fires? Oh, what the fuck? There it is. Love that. It's like Martin Scorsese's mom in the DC universe. (laughs) So that's incentive to leave us reviews as well. Uh, We love everything that you guys do to help support us. And we love making this podcast. So so thanks for listening to another year-end mail-tastic conclusive episode of the greatest. Ah!